The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. What a mercy that we can turn to Christ at any time. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah. We're going to spend our time today looking at future hope, Isaiah's vision of the future. And in my own preparations, this has been very edifying for my soul. It was future for Isaiah, and we need to ask, what does it mean for us right now, this side of the resurrection, with the first fruits of the new creation already intruded in the person of Christ? So, the book of Isaiah, we're going to cover the gamut of the whole book. I have five different texts that we're going to look at. We're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 2. Each of these are portrayals of the future Jerusalem from Isaiah's perspective, portrayals of the day when the land is restored. And it's a land that is big enough to hold all the nations of the world who have been caught up by God. This is no ordinary city, this new Jerusalem. A Jerusalem that has no walls, where the boundaries of the city have been ever expanded, where God is right in the midst of it, and His glory, like... um, Israel in the wilderness is overshadowing them like a canopy, protecting them. Where death will be no more, where tears will be no more. A day when the Messiah reigns, the Spirit of the living God rests upon Him, where justice is being worked for, and where the nations are gathering to worship the God of the universe. Isaiah and the future. Let me just pause and pray one more time. Father, open up your word to us. May these be more than words on a page. May it be life. A deep-seated confidence that you have acted in space and time and that what is declared in this text is already ours and will be clearly displayed in our future if we were in Jesus. Heighten our hope, even amidst all the cares of this world. Let us leave resting in a God who is big and who is faithful, always trustworthy, 100%. In Christ I pray. Amen. Five texts. Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. Isaiah 4, 2 through 6. Chapter 11, 1 through 10. 25, 6 through 12. And 65, 17 through 25. We're going to look at all these today. 2, 1 through 4. Bible's open. Let's just look at these. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now notice he says concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And then see what he talks about. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. 
and all the nations. So he says it's concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He says, all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, hey, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Why? For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Latter days. Latter days is a phrase that has showed up all the way since Genesis. It's a technical term looking into the future, and I want us to think about what kinds of things were to happen in the latter days. And then how does it relate to us today? Latter days. Then Jacob called his sons, Genesis 49, and he said, Hey, gather yourselves together, twelve boys who would become the twelve tribes of Israel. Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the latter days. I'm talking to Israel, and I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the latter days, and this is one of the things that will happen. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In the latter days is when this ruler from Judah will rise, and all enemies will be put down. And that scepter, when he holds it, it will never depart again. Judah is where David comes from, born in Bethlehem. But his own reign came to an end. But God promised that he would have a throne forever. So that means there either has to be a rapid fire producing of Davidic kings in succession for eternity for there to be an eternal throne, or it means that there will be one ultimate son of David whose throne will never end. Those are the only two possibilities to have an eternal throne of David coming from the line of Judah. And what the Bible ultimately discloses is that we're looking for the latter, a Davidic king from the line of Judah whose throne would never end. It would happen in the latter days. Numbers 24. Come, I will let you know, this is Balaam talking, I'll let you know what this people will do to your people Sorry, this is God talking to the prophet Balaam about Israel. Come, I will let you know what this people, namely Israel, will do to your people, the enemy, in the latter days. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Who? Who? A star shall come out of Jacob. Abraham, all the earth is covered with stars. And all of them are pointers to the fact that your offspring will be as numerous as those stars. I need an heir. 
Now we learn that one of those stars, a star will rise that will make all the other stars grow strangely dim in the light of its glory and grace. A star will rise from Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. And this star, this light, this ruler with his scepter shall crush the forehead of Moab. He's a skull crusher. Genesis 3.15 And he will break down the sons of Sheth, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. That will happen in the latter days. These are the days when Israel will experience the curse of exile. Here's what Moses says, Deuteronomy 31, For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded. And in the latter days, evil will befall you. That's the curses of the covenant. Evil will befall you in the latter days, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger through the work of your hands. So in the latter days, it's the days of the messianic deliverer. The latter days are the days when the curse will come upon Israel. And the latter days are the days when the restoration of Israel will happen after exile. When you're in tribulation and all these things, both the blessing and the curse, come upon you in the latter days, in the latter days, then you will return. After exile, restoration is to come to the people of God. But never so that it will just be for them. Through Israel, all the world would be blessed. Well, when is the restoration to happen? When all the tribulation comes upon them. It will be overcome in the latter days. In the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that He swore to them. God is trustworthy to His promises to Abraham. He won't let the world go. But He also won't redeem the world except through Israel. And so in the latter days, I will restore you because I am a merciful God. Or Hosea chapter 3. Afterward, the children of Israel, that is after their exile, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God. They will seek David their king. Now, Hosea is ministering in 740 B.C. David was from 1000 B.C. 260 years after David, Hosea is ministering. And yet he's looking to the future and saying, Israel will return. They will return to Yahweh their God, and they'll be looking for David their king. This isn't the original David. This is the foretold David. The ultimate ruler. They will return to him in the latter days. And they shall come and fear the Lord and come to his goodness. In the latter days, Hosea 3. Now we turn to the New Testament. How does the New Testament talk using the same exact language? The latter days is the present day. Today, you and I are living in it. It's the day of the outpouring of the Spirit from Pentecost and beyond. But this, what you're seeing, says Peter in Acts chapter 2, 
All these people speaking in tongues. These glowing flames on our heads. This isn't about drunkenness. No, this is what Joel prophesied. And in the last days, that's the phrase, in the latter days, it shall be, declares God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. That's latter days. And Peter says, you've been waiting for them? They're here. The day of the Messiah the day when the curse is overcome, the day when restoration is brought. It's latter days, and Peter says it started 2,000 years ago. The writer to the Hebrews. It's the present day since Jesus' first coming. Long ago, at many times and in various ways, God spoke to us through His prophets, but in these last days, in these latter days, God has spoken to us through His Son. The book of Hebrews is being written in the first century, and he says we're living in the latter days. So, we look back at Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and the nations shall gather to it, saying, Hey, come, let us hear the voice of the Lord, and they will come and heed His law that will be going forth. Latter days. For Isaiah, it was future. But these texts would suggest that for us, it's already. How about the mountain of the house of the Lord? That's where they're going to gather. How are we to understand this mountain being elevated above all others? Is it that there's going to be a massive earthquake physically and all other mountains will be lowered and this one will be raised? Or is it talking about something a spiritual reality that in the perceptions of all the world, somehow where the throne of God is will be above all others. I think it's the latter. Let's see. The mountain of the house of the Lord. These are echoes of the Garden of Eden. To use the language of God's throne, the house of God on a mountain, takes us back to the Garden of Eden, the sanctuary of God's presence from which a river flowed. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So the Garden of Eden. Eden is a region. In the region of Eden is a garden. But then that same river that flowed to water the garden breaks up into four distinct rivers that flow out to the four key regions of the earth. And all the rest of the earth is watered from this single river that's flowing out of Eden. What does that suggest? Water flows downhill, that puts Eden on a mountain. Same type of imagery is seen then with the promised land. Here's Moses right after the exodus. Where are they headed? They're going to the promised land. Look how it's described. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. God's mountain is the promised land. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And now Isaiah, sitting in the old Jerusalem, is looking to a day when... This city, which is filled with 
sin and rebellion and disloyalty. Poverty is abounding everywhere. The wealthy are exploiting the poor. An ugly world, he's envisioning a day when all of a sudden, God's presence will be central again in the universe. And this place will become the sanctuary of the living God, and it will be elevated higher than all other mountains. Hebrews chapter 12. The text says it's looking for the mountain of the house of the Lord to be the highest of the mountains. And then it says, For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We're looking, Isaiah's envisioning Jerusalem here. How does this relate to us? Is it merely future? Look at how the words in Hebrews talk. You're not coming to a place of fire and smoke and of fear. No, it's not Mount Sinai anymore. Old covenant has been trumped. Now it says, Hebrews 12, 22, you have come to Mount Zion. You, right now, church, as he's writing this book, you have already come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Now notice what he says, though. You, earthly folks, in this sphere... The mountain you have approached is the heavenly Jerusalem. It's a spiritual sphere, but you're already there. You've gathered in to the heavenly Jerusalem to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Isaiah, what did he see? The heavens filled up. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We're there now, around the throne. Our spiritual inheritance is already secure. We are sons and daughters of the living God. And the writer of the Hebrews says, you're at, you're at the new Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem. But what are we anticipating? We're anticipating the day when, like John, what he saw comes to all of us. It's not that Jerusalem isn't real. It is real. It's where God is right now, seated above all things. And we are anticipating the day, like John, when we will see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven to earth. That that parcel of property... That turf across the Atlantic, across the Mediterranean Sea, where Jerusalem the city is today, is not what Isaiah was envisioning. He was envisioning the city of the living God that, is all, that we're already at, says the writer to the Hebrews, and he was envisioning a day when that new Jerusalem, not the earthly picture, but the real deal, would come down to earth. And that hasn't happened yet. But what has already happened is that you and I have gathered. We are, according to chapter 2, as I would understand it, among the nations who have flowed to Jerusalem. In our eyes, we have recognized that that is the city of the living God. He is on His throne and He is our King. And we've identified Him with Him. Identified ourselves with Him. 
No longer in hostility against God, but submitted. All of our weaponry has been broken down. But there's still many in the world that are in hostility against this God. And so there's an already part and there's a not yet part. But this is an all future. I'm, as the way I'm understanding the New Testament guys reading this, they're seeing this as something that's already experienced. And it's supposed to, our taste of it today, every spiritual blessing secured for us in Christ, Ephesians 1.3, that's the down payment of the full-blown inheritance. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And it's supposed to, our little taste of glory today, that's delight, is supposed to heighten desire. And what we hope for tomorrow can change who we are today. When cancer comes on the soul, I say, this is temporary. When I struggle to find the van I need to meet the family, to meet the needs of the family, we say, this is temporary. My guide is still on the throne. And right now, He wants my heart to be dependent on Him. Lord, let me live in the context of Jerusalem where You are above all things. And as we do, we pray, Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We live as exiles, separated from our homeland. But that is our homeland, and it will come to earth. That He may teach us His ways. Now, I just typed in, where do I read the word law? Because what it says right here is, the peoples, the nations, will come to Jerusalem saying, let's go up in order that He, namely the God of Jacob, may teach us His ways. For out of Zion shall go the law. Well, we know about the law in Jeremiah 31. The new covenant has law. It'll be written on the heart. Now, this text is looking to the future and saying, in that day of restoration, people are going to long for God's law. And I just wanted to say, well, where does it come from? Is there any clarity in the rest of Isaiah about this law? Well, look what it says. Here's God talking in Isaiah 51. Give attention to me, my people. And give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me in the future. And I will set justice for a light to the peoples. Justice and light, two things that we already have seen in the last few weeks connected to the role of the Messiah. And then we go to Isaiah 42, which by the time we get to Isaiah 51 has already been given. But Isaiah 42 was one of the servant songs. And how did the servant talk? Or how, what was told about the servant? The servant of God, the one who will be called Israel, representing Israel, Israel who has a mission to bring Israel back, the servant will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So as I'm looking at the text in Isaiah chapter 2 and it says the people are gathering to Jerusalem to hear the law of the God of Jacob, and later in the book, it says that law will ultimately come through the messianic servant. I'm not seeing two different laws. I'm seeing that God's law is going to come through the servant, Jesus. And I'm seeing that the justice that God will establish, the reign that God will establish on earth, will ultimately be through His servant, 
That's how God will reign. He will do it tangibly before people in the, through the reign of the Messiah. Now, Matthew, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How does it begin? Verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. I'm the king. I'm the ruling and reigning one. Now go make disciples of the nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. His law is what matters. He's the end time servant. The latter days of the Messiah are upon us already. Not for Isaiah. But there's something that we're experiencing that Isaiah only longed to see already. Turn to chapter 4 now. Chapter 4, 2 through 6. In that day, the branch... So if you've been with us the last few weeks, we noted how Isaiah uses the language of garden to talk about new creation. That after the forest of the original creation is burned down, a small sprout will rise. A shoot from the tribe of Jesse. Not from the tribe of Jesse, from the house of Jesse. That same shoot who will suffer on our behalf in Isaiah 53. It'll all start. The new creation will be birthed out of fire, out of suffering, and it will start with a single plant. Here Isaiah calls that plant the branch. In the latter day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. So you see the connection with our previous text. We're talking about the land and its bounty. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who's been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Well, the survivors of Israel, that's who we're talking about. But then in our minds we have to scratch our head and say, but the nations in chapter 2 are the ones who gathered to Jerusalem. How do we understand them in relation to this restoration? Because they're in Jerusalem too. He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who's been recorded, in, recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. So you'll remember with me that the prophets envision, when they think of restoration, it comes in two parts. Restoration to the land, physical land, and reconciliation with God. They have to return to the land, and then they have to be reconciled to God. And in some texts, it looks like it's all supposed to happen at one time, but the prophets make clear, no, it's two parts. This is envisioning the second part, after the first part has happened. They return to the land initially, then out of Bethlehem the king rises, and then sins are addressed. Isaiah 53, where a lamb suffers on behalf of the rest of the world. 
on in this day, the day of the branch of the Lord, the messianic branch, every all the filth will be washed away, cleansed. That's today. Already there for those in Christ. And tomorrow for those who will believe in Him in the next 24 hours. Then, at that time, the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies. Then, then, in the day when the sins are washed away, the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of flaming fire by night. What does that sound like? Cloud by day, fire by night? The Exodus, yes. The very presence of God that led, people, led Israel through the wilderness, tabernacling in their midst. His very presence will be over them, over all the site of Mount Zion. And Mount Zion's another word name for Jerusalem. So gathered there are the survivors of Israel. But according to chapter 2, also gathered there are those from the nations. And over them is the very presence of God. Smoke and the shining of flame fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. Over all the glory, a canopy. So God in the center, His glory coming up like a mushroom cloud. And over top of all, a canopy protecting from all harm. Everyone who's underneath the canopy of God, underneath His wings, will know refuge. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. You'll recall Jeremiah 3, and when you've multiplied and increased in the land in those days, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered. No more Ark of the Covenant physically. That was the throne of God. Why? Because at that time, all of Jerusalem will be the throne of God. No longer in the Holy of Holies, no, Jerusalem has become the Holy of Holies. Where the presence of God is residing. And who's at Jerusalem? And all the nations shall gather to it, says Jeremiah, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. He's talking about the exact same reality that Isaiah is. Gathered to Jerusalem, where the presence of God is, and apparently where the future King David is, and the glory of God is there. And the saints, made up of Israel, ethnic Israel, survivors of Israel, and the nations, all intermingling and somehow with Yahweh their God and David their king. Here's Zechariah's words. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as as villages without walls. Why? Because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. We can't put a city wall around this thing. The number of people that are gathered to the presence of God is enormous. And the city, what's happened? The city started small and it's now ever expanding as more and more people come to fellowship with the living God. Zechariah chapter 2 And I will be to her a wall of fire all around. The glory of God, a canopy, says Isaiah chapter 4. I'll be a wall of fire all around her. 
and I will be the glory in her midst. Revelation 21, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God. He's the one in, we, we enter into Him, into His presence in order to enjoy worship. We're not just going to meet Him, He is the temple. He's all around us, His glory has consumed us. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. But its light, by its light, will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot... The branch, come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. It's all going to start with one. The new garden of God, the new creation of God, is going to start with a single branch. The first fruits of the new creation upon his resurrection from the dead. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decipher disputes by what his ears hear, but he will judge with righteousness." the poor, and he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb in that day. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. No more serpent problems. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. See the connection? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. They shall not hurt or destroy in my mountain, that's Jerusalem, because all the earth will be filled with his glory. It's as, I'm seeing this blurring. It's as if the city has become the earth. They won't fear in the city because the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. Then notice what else it says. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, and the coastlands of the sea. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's the exact same phrase that we see in Isaiah 61. The word, the Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. That's the verse that Jesus cites at the kickoff of his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Not just at his second coming, at his first coming. 
The Spirit of the Lord was already alive and well, working in him. 11 verse 9. In the day when the wolf and the lamb lie down together, when the lion will not eat the fattened calf, in that day they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How are we to understand that imagery? Some have automatically said, that's a millennium text. Or others have said, that's new heavens and new earth text. All I want us to do at this point is simply to see that the day when the child will play over the whole of the cobra, never fearing the serpent... That same day is the day that, verse 10, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal for the peoples and the nations will inquire. What are they inquiring of? The law of God. It's that same day that the nations will be gathering in, says verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend His hand and begin to bring all the nations that were once scattered at Babel. They will now be gathered back. It's in that day. all I'm going to say at this moment. The nations shall inquire and then um, to recover the remnant that remains of his people. I think this is another echo of the nations that we already saw in chapter 2. They're going to be gathered in. It's all the same imagery. It's building precept upon precept as we walk through the book. Chapter 25, 6-12. On this mountain, there's our connection with all the previous texts. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. In that day, on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning. When John sees that and when he expresses it in Revelation 21, he's just got Isaiah 25 open. He's saying, you've anticipated this day? I'm seeing it now. No more curse. The not yet of our existence today just as it was not yet for Isaiah, the not yet of our existence, when death will be no more and crying and pain will be no more, that's part of this vision of the future. And finally, Isaiah 65. For behold, verse 17, I create new heavens and new earth. That that gives us clarity what we're talking about, right? And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. 
But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. New heavens and new earth, now that's equated with Jerusalem. Know this, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her peoples to be a gladness. I'll rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in that day a sound of weeping or a cry of distress. No more there shall, shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now people have read that and automatically they think, oh, that can't be new heavens and the new earth because there's no death in it. This must be a millennium text. But it says new heavens and new earth. That's the context of this vision. So how are we to read the language? They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. My chosen shall long enjoy the works of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. When they are speaking yet, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The text makes clear right off the bat, we're talking about new heavens and new earth. And therefore, it forces me then to understand when it's saying an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days, this must be figurative language. Because death will be no more. Isaiah 25 already told me that. This must be saying that you're not going to have to worry about sickness. Life is going to last. The world as you know it is not going to be the same. But then we're faced with another dilemma. The lion and the lamb language. That's new heavens and new earth in this text. But in chapter 11, it was the age of the Messiah text. The age of the Messiah, the days when the ingathering of the nations will happen, when the Spirit of the Lord will rest on the Messiah, that's the day when the Lion and the Lamb will be. So we have three texts. I put them in your paper. You can compare them. The first text says, you don't have to fear, for the Lion is a vegetarian. He won't eat the beast. But the second text says, you won't have to fear, because there won't be any lions. And a highway, how are the nations going to gather to Jerusalem? They're going to follow a highway. It shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. Everyone who's in Jerusalem will be holy. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk in the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there in that day. Nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. So we're faced with a dilemma. Either this is talking about a totally different thing when it says the lion will lay down with the lamb and over here it says there won't be any lions. Or they're talking about the same thing and we're supposed to understand that the language of the prophets in these moments is figurative. He's envisioning something in the future and he's talking from different angles to a people so they can understand it. No more pain. No more fear. 
You fear lions, there won't be lions. You fear lions, they won't eat. They, they'll be there, but they won't eat meat. I'm talking about the same thing. Last text. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. Once again now, the lion is back. How do I... What do we do? This, this is a progressive development over five texts, and I think we're supposed to read them together, read the whole book together, and see how he builds precept upon precept to talk about the same realities. So here's how I summarize it all as we close our time. Number one, Isaiah sees that in the latter days, the centrality and importance of the new Jerusalem will rise in the eyes of the world. There, In Jerusalem, those who are part of that Jerusalem, in that place, God's law will go forth through the instrument of his messianic servant who will establish both justice and peace. Already happening. The teachings of the Messiah going forth. There, at the Jerusalem that Isaiah envisioned, God's glory will be both will both permeate and protect, and the boundaries of the city will expand to hold all the redeemed from the world. It's big enough. The glory of the future that you and I are already tasting is big enough for everyone who will believe. To that place, Jerusalem, the nations will gather as the culmination of a second exodus and as a new creation. That's happening already. You and I are testify to that truth. At that time, in that messianic age, death and pain will be destroyed. A new heavens and earth will be enjoyed by the preserved ones of the earth who have sought refuge in Yahweh and David their king. The messianic age of hope is what we're talking about. The messianic age that has already been inaugurated with the resurrection of Christ. It's already started. He is the king. I think that's what Isaiah would envision. He would see Jesus as inaugurating, starting, beginning all that he was pointing to. Where the curse is abolished already. Already abolished at the cross. And yet, not yet, in other spheres. It has truly been inaugurated. The messianic age of hope has been inaugurated already in the first coming of Christ. We're a new creation and are living in the last days and have already come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, Hebrews 12. Our lives are already hidden with Christ who is seated at the right hand of God, Colossians 3. The Great Commission is seeing the ingathering of the nations to the heavenly Jerusalem and the law of God has gone forth through His servant, Jesus Christ. But that already is matched by a not yet While the new creation is inaugurated, it has not yet been consummated. While death and the curse have been conquered, we wait to see their complete eradication. While hope today exists through tears and pain, we look ahead to the day when tears and pain and the curse will be no more. We long for the day when we, with John, will see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Already, already, let that alreadiness Fill your heart with great confidence when you feel yourself tasting pain today. It's already secure. It's so already that it's as if it's already happened completely. 
We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We've gathered to the new Jerusalem. That's how I'm understanding this. But we're, this isn't it. This is only dawn. The light of the future has shone, but we're waiting for more when all the shadows will flee. And that is our hope. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. We've just flown through this material. I pray that you would raise questions in the hearts of these people and give them answers. Let them seek you, and as they seek you, may they find you and give them hope. Hope that instills faith, a faith that will persevere even amidst the suffering as we await the day when what we believe will become sight. In Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.